Well, welcome to the Stop and a Think podcast. I'm your host, Will Dole. Thank you for listening. Today I have with me Douglas Brower, who's been a Presbyterian pastor for over 40 years. He, he served churches in Wheaton, Illinois, Ann Arbor, Michigan, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and most recently in Zurich, Switzerland. He's the author of six books, and his most recent, Chasing After Wind, A Pastor's Life, which is a memoir, was published in March 2022 by Erdman's. He has an undergraduate degree from Calvin University. He earned both master's and doctoral degrees from Princeton Theological Seminary. So thank you for being on the podcast, Douglas Brower. Well, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed uh, getting to know you a little bit as uh, this day has approached, and I <laughs> very much enjoy being on the, the, this podcast. Yeah, well, thank you for coming on. Uh, your book, your most recent book, Chasing After Wind, I mean, that, that phrase, what, what made you want to title a memoir about your life, Chasing After Wind? <laughs> well, as you uh, probably know from the first couple of chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, that uh, phrase uh, shows up a couple, at least a couple of times. And um, I probably would not have remembered those words, but my grandmother uh, used them. In the uh, family where I grew up, it was normal to have uh, devotions at uh, dinner time, And so when we sat down at my grandmother's table, we would have devotions. My grandfather was deaf, and, and so my grandmother uh, took over that role. Well, <laughs> this was an odd, I mean, from a child's perspective, this was an odd place uh, uh, to read for family devotions. And I don't think my grandmother was depressed. And looking back, I think she was trying to tell us something. I think she was trying to tell us that a lot of what we do with our lives doesn't amount to much. We need to be careful with how we allocate our time and where we look for meaning in life. I would love to go back and have that conversation with her, but I'm guessing that's what she was about when she read to us from Ecclesiastes. Yeah, I mean, so much of life is, I mean, just that idea there in Ecclesiastes, like it's, it's like striving after when you're trying to, to catch something that you can't see, you can't feel, <laughs> I mean, yes, you feel it, but you can't tangibly hold it. What sort of things in, in life do you kind of identify that way as we might call them windy things, things that, that are, that we chase after that, that don't amount to a lot? Yeah, I, I mean, this is important uh, to me and I, I, I was not, really aware of it through much of my ministry. Uh, I, I felt called to ministry and I launched into it with this great enthusiasm as many young pastors do. I was uh, overcome with a feeling of God's grace in my life, overwhelmed with the notion that God loved me unconditionally. And then slowly uh, over time that gave way to, uh, I'll just say ambition. I, I started to think of what I did as my career uh, I was the children. I was a child of immigrant parents, so I'll blame them a little bit here. Uh, it was left to me to succeed in life and in ministry. That seemed to mean uh, getting the numbers up, you know, raising budgets every year and making sure the church was full and uh, uh, the Sunday school had to be full. I, those were all of my external measures of success. And at a certain point, I, I became more and more aware that uh, that was empty, 
that that was not what God had called me to do with my life. And uh, it's been very painful to acknowledge this, but I, I wrote the book partly to start healing myself, but also to uh, say to young pastors, remember what you were called to do. You know, remember what that call was all about. Hmm. That's helpful. What were things, so you, you had a Dutch Calvinist upbringing and I, I'm in Northwest Iowa. So the next county north of us, Sioux County is like, I mean, Dork College and yes. super, super Dutch. If you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. Uh, what, what were things about that upbringing that you felt really benefited you, uh, especially as you got later on in life and ministry? Well, I'm so pleased in some ways that you know about the uh, the background. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry about the if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much stuff. Uh, Dutch people can be humble and arrogant at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe you already know that. So, it, yeah, I had this um, thoroughgoing Christian education. When I was born, my parents were determined that I would be soaked and marinated in the Christian faith. So in addition to those devotions at home, uh, which I mentioned, I went to a Christian school and uh, I, of course, there was church morning and evening worship. There were Wednesday night catechism classes. Uh, I was in third grade. I mean, this is just remarkable to me now. I was in third grade and I would go to weekly classes uh, to learn the Heidelberg Catechism, <laughs> a document that was written in Germany a few centuries ago. And I just assumed that eight-year-olds all over the world were doing the same thing. And it wasn't until I got to seminary, actually, that I realized that uh, what I had spent my childhood doing was something very unusual. And I, I hope that what you got from the book was that I write appreciatively about it. I'm, I'm, I, I never tried to run away from it. But <laughs> at the same time, I acknowledge that it's odd. It's not how most people grow up. Yeah, my my poor children. They uh they definitely have some of the oddness. I mean, we're we're not we're not Dutch Reformed, but uh, we still work on a catechism at home, and <laughs> yeah. I, I think they they'll probably one day go, wow, that's a little weird. Uh, but but, but that's well, all right. Uh, yeah, it is it is okay. And even now, later in life, I this, many of those words and phrases from the catechism are still with me. And they mm -hmm. sustain me in the tough moments. And, uh, you know, I have appreciation for my parents and what they did. Yeah. Something else that, that happened early on in your life is you, you discovered that you were a writer. Uh, and, and you write in your memoir that you were a writer long before you were a public speaker. So I wonder how that shaped your ministry, how it impacted, I mean, your the way you think uh, and, and process information, like, what influence did, did being a writer have on 40 years of, of being a pastor? Yeah, I think I, I put this in the book that I would never suggest my style to a up and coming pastor. If, if you feel called to be a preacher, I would never advise you to write out a manuscript and take it into the pulpit with you. That's just the worst, uh, the worst approach ever. But um, it's how I started and I stayed with it. And it's because I learned early on in my life to process my thinking uh, through my writing. So I wouldn't know what I thought about something until I wrote it out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that may sound odd to, uh, to you, but that, it certainly was true for me. And then in my first year of preaching, I was a student intern at the time. 
in my in my first year, I would sit down to prepare for Sunday, and I found myself writing all sorts of things that I didn't really knew I believed that deeply. Mm-hmm. So I would be declaring my faith uh, on Sunday mornings and surprising myself by uh, how deeply these uh, beliefs were rooted uh, in me. But but anyway, I, as as you know from reading the memoir, uh, I adopted this speaking writing hybrid style. And I think it made me worth listening to uh, most of those years. But uh, no, it's not the right style for everybody. <laughs> it's, it's interesting how different people find their voice. I mean, both as I mean, just in writing, but also in, in preaching the, the ways that people come into that. It's, it's always different. Uh, you know, you've got schools that teach it this way or that way. And, you know, you have to write a manuscript or you can't ever have a manuscript. And I don't know, I think God wires us differently where some of us do just process through pen to paper or finger to keyboard. <laughs> uh, that's how, that's how we process the world. And if we're supposed to communicate, like maybe we just roll with what he gave us. You know, that there's wisdom in that. And I, if that's where you come out, then I admire you for that. My, I, you're right. I think we all have our own style and our own voice. The, the first senior pastor I worked with, used to take a manuscript to the pulpit, although I don't know why, because mm. it, it was like a runway for him. He, the airplane took off and the, the manuscript was left behind. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it was there in case he needed it, but I listened to him preach for five years and I, I, he never once looked back. Huh. What did you find? So you, you've pastored all over the place, uh, all over the States and, and internationally. What... Uh, I should have formulated this question a little better before I started to ask it, but what were some of the big takeaways as far as commonalities you found everywhere you went? Like things about people that you thought maybe would be different, but wound up being the same. Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. The the truth of the matter is I pastored uh, for most of my ministry anyway, I pastored people who looked like me and sounded like me. And as it turned out, that was easy ministry to do. I mean, it didn't feel that way at the time. But Mm -hmm. uh, when you work with people who use the same vocabulary as you have the same values, uh, ministry is relatively easy. So even though I moved around, the the people I met were in the same social class, hate to use that language, but we all we all spoke alike, read the same newspapers, but then uh, toward the end of my career, as I was 59 or 60, when I uh, got to Europe, I served an international church with more than two dozen nationalities on any given Sunday morning. And suddenly I was with people I didn't know and whose uh, responses I couldn't anticipate. And that was probably the most exciting five or so years of ministry that I ever had because I was, <laughs> I had to listen as hard as I'd ever listened before, because I couldn't, I didn't know exactly, I, I didn't know exactly what people were saying until I tried to make sense of it. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but um, looking back, the people I served, even though they lived in different places in the U.S., were quite a bit the same, shared values, but then not toward the end. Mm. So kind of circling back around, you know, you're, you're, your memoir is titled Chasing After Wind. And you talk about how a lot of a lot of life is 
<laughs> I mean, to, to borrow the NIV's translation of that, meaningless. Uh, but then in the middle of your book, you've got a chapter on the holy pits. And uh, I was just reading in there uh, a few minutes ago, and and you, you share a story of, of someone reading you right before you go in to do a funeral. And they, they say something to the effect of, oh, I, I don't envy you this. And, and what you say is that you, you never felt more like a pastor than in those moments, like at, at someone's funeral. Well, could you unpack that a little bit, like the holiness of those kind of moments and, and how that made you feel more like being a pastor? That was, it was a statement I really resonated with, but I'm not sure I could have put words to it. Good, good. I'm glad uh, as a fellow pastor, you got that. Uh, you know, some people anticipate that pastors love to do weddings and that we dread funerals. I mean, that's just the sense of what it must be like to be a pastor. And the, the truth of the matter is, I always found a greater sense of God's holiness at a funeral. And I don't want to go too far down this path, but at, at a wedding, I, I always had the sense that uh, we should get this over so we can get to the reception. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a scripture reading might have added some you know, religious weight to the occasion, but not always. At a, at a funeral, things were different. Uh, at a funeral, there was a sense of emptiness and profound grief. And even in God's apparent silence at that moment, there was a searching and an openness. People wanted to know, uh, is there something I can hang on to in this moment? And so in that silence and in that emptiness, I thought that, not every time maybe, but I thought I sensed God's answer to us. I am here, and I felt it was my responsibility to proclaim that. I'm here, you are in my hands, I care for you. Um, uh, you will, my love will always surround you. And that, that was what I felt uh, compelled to uh, say to those families. And in the midst of that is when I felt God's holiness is how I put it in the book, but God's real presence with us. I, I can't resist telling you this story either. The, the, uh, the sacraments are clearly those, some of those moments when God's presence is unmistakable. And having grown up in the Reformed tradition, I was used to infant baptism, and that was just the way we understood it and did it. But then when I served this international church, suddenly global Christians, I discovered, had no use for (laughs) infant baptism. And so for the first time in my life, I was wading out into the lake with new believers Mm. and, you know, dipping them into the water, raising, I had to watch a YouTube video to figure out how to do it. (laughs) <laughs> so that's that's an admission i guess uh but i have never i remember one woman in particular i have never felt so excited about what had just happened here this person had been raised to new life in christ mm-hmm. and i you know was allowed to be a part of uh, the experience and i thought god is present in this moment and i'm so pleased to be a pastor mm. yeah yeah, it is like you, you get to be a part of some of the most significant parts of life. Uh, even, I mean, even a funeral, like Ecclesiastes 7, better is the day of death than the day of birth, for such is the end of all mankind and the living should lay it to heart. And uh, I remember reading that when I was younger and puzzling over it. But then you spend enough time at funerals and you go, this is when people are actually thinking about those things that, that matter forever. Um, not just 
yeah, let's get on to the, let's get on to the party. Um, so you write that uh, in your retirement, you plan to remember who you are. Uh, what do you, what do you mean by that? And maybe how, how has retirement given you that opportunity to remember who you are? Yeah, I was worried that you were going to ask <laughs> that question and it has not been as easy as I thought, but, hmm. but here's, here's what I've come to. Uh, I'm no longer concerned about my resume. Uh, I'm no longer thinking about new items that I can add there that will impress people. Uh, suddenly I have this opportunity to be uh, completely authentic or real in my role. I'm a pastor. Uh, I don't have to introduce myself that way in the community. I'm just, I am who I am now. Uh, finally, I don't have a, uh, you know, I can't claim this big church that I'm the pastor of. I'm simply a, a servant, a, a, you know, I hope a humble servant of God. Hmm. I've got a neighbor who just came home in hospice, came home from the hospital in hospice care. And I, I sent him a text this morning and said, can I come over and see you? And uh, I, I thought in that moment, I'm not representing a church anymore. I'm not uh, trying to uh, check a mark on, you know, the pastoral care list. I just want to go and sit with this uh, neighbor in the last days of his life and, um, and be with him. And I think, okay, this is what authentic ministry looks like. Hmm. Absolutely. So this, I, I didn't send you these questions, but maybe a little bit off the wall. Has there been a particular song or piece of music that's been particularly meaningful to you in your life, in your ministry? You know, I'm going to show my age here. Uh, I came along just after the contemporary music movement uh, bloomed. So when I went to, uh, I went on mission trips with the kids or participated in their youth activities, then I did learn a fair amount of contemporary Christian music. But most of the favorite stuff I have goes back for decades and probably it's, it's before your time. Uh, this last uh, November, I think was the first time our church, the, the church I worship uh, with here in Holland, the first time we were back together, we, we had been meeting in the parking lot uh, because of COVID. And mm -hmm. this first Sunday in November was the first time we were back inside the building and so we were singing uh, to the organ, sorry, <laughs> again, showing my age, but we, it, the hymn was uh, for all the saints and hmm. I opened up the hymn book. It's one of my favorite hymns and I couldn't sing a single word. <laughs> I, I was croaking, uh, trying to croak out the words and it, it was, I was overwhelmed by the setting and by being together finally and hearing voices around me singing the same words. Yeah, I'd have to say for all the saints is a all-time favorite. Hmm. How did uh, the experience of, I mean, everything that we went through with COVID, but then especially like the the distance that was imposed, yeah. as opposed to like the, the normalcy of for thousands of years of Christian worship being something that's in person and gathered, like how how do you see that impact believers around you? Well, I'm just so glad I, I was not leading a congregation in the last two years. I, I don't know how you did it. Uh, I, I, I tried to be as helpful as I could to my pastor here. Uh, I, I preached a couple of times and I hated preaching into a camera lens. 
And so every time I did that, the, you know, the handful of times I did that, I thought, oh, how does my pastor do this? How do you work up the energy and conviction to a, a camera lens? So I, I don't have any words of wisdom. All I have is compassion and um, concern for you guys who have who've kept the church going uh, in a very tough time. Good for you. I, I would love my fellow church members, worshipers to know uh, how hard this has been. Definitely makes you thankful that Jesus promised he'd build his church. <laughs> You're sitting here all out of ideas, like, what do we do? How do we make things work? And yeah. uh, Jesus has it covered. What are maybe uh, a couple of books that have been particularly formative to for you? I mean, they don't need to be biblical, theological. I mean, maybe they are, but... Uh, You've got a lot of Marilyn Robinson and Annie Dillard quotes in, in your memoir. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, all those are fine. I, uh, I did think about this before our conversation, and I was going to uh, mention Eugene Peterson. Just about anything mm -hmm. by Eugene Peterson uh, would be recommended, but especially his books about pastoral ministry. And I think one of his earliest ones was uh, A Contemplative Pastor. And uh, then you know, if I had listened to him earlier in my ministry, I think I would have had a better, richer ministry. He certainly didn't make the mistakes that I did. Uh, he took care of himself. Uh, and, and in these books, he explains how he takes care of himself and hmm. how he balances study and work. Um, I just, uh, so uh, uh, the contemplative pastor is a good place to get started in Eugene Peterson. Hmm. Can that's I mention helpful. one more that'll show my Absolutely. age? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Frederick Beekner is a Presbyterian pastor too, like Peterson. Uh, he started out as a novelist and then had a conversion experience. No other way to describe it. Went to seminary. And most of his books were written after that conversion experience. He, he writes in such a personal way. And people didn't do that then. Mm -hmm. uh, pastors didn't reveal a lot about themselves at that time. But he wrote about his father's suicide and his daughter's eating disorder. And he did it in a way in, in which he was not the main character of the story. So he invited people into his story. But what they learned about was God's grace and God's uh, providence. It was, it was those books, uh, uh, the Beekner books, were very formative uh, in how formative for me in learning to be a pastor. And the, the, the first one is telling secrets. Hmm. That's, that's super helpful recommendations. Um, thank you again for coming on the podcast, Douglas Brower. Uh, do you have anything else you want to share with the audience? Uh, I mean, the book's Chasing After Wind. Do you have any place else you'd want to send people to find out more about you and your writing? Yeah, I, I have a blog. I moved recently from a WordPress site to a, a Substack newsletter, but the name is the same. It's Doug's blog and anybody can, it's free, completely free. Anybody can follow along. All right. We'll put links to those things in the show notes. Uh, Douglas Brower has been the guest and this has been the Stopping to Think podcast. I'm your host, Will Dole. Thank you for listening. a world full of truth. Gather around Pictures that move Their thoughts dance in place To the bohemian groove